So uh, uh, I can imagine you have a dramatic story to, to, to tell. Uh, it's not easy for anyone to suffer such a loss in such conditions. Uh, we'll reach that point, but before reaching that point, I would love to know uh, when did you come back to Lebanon? How, how much time did you stay in Lebanon? And uh, maybe you went, you came to Lebanon for university degree? Yeah, well, I, I came as a, as a child, really, at the age of 11, 12, no. I moved here. Uh, I kept going back and forth. Uh, I did my master's at AUB. I think we probably took similar courses at AUB yeah. and kind of like you, a master's student there. Um, and what major? Uh, Middle East studies. Middle East but, studies. But you could do history, politics, yeah. sociology. It's kind of, you pick and choose. It's a supermarket uh, master's degree. <laughs> Interesting. I chose the right items. I and think. the bachelor degree was in, in which major? It was in the States. Uh, political science and psychology. Political science. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I mean, in the back of my mind, I think the Lebanese story was always there, but I didn't really focus in on it, I think, until my master's degree. And I started that at AUB. Yeah. But I was lucky because I, uh, I rented a room from an old music school that was, belonged to Kamel Salibi. Oof. And that building is gone. Um, I think it was Ajar Adim back then. So we were, I mean, back then you could kind yeah. of, it was a different story. And I was very lucky I got to meet him. Um, Interesting. And I was impressed by his storytelling and a big fan of his writing. In 2005, I was reading a story about Beirut's history at Sesin. Yeah. And sort of that little rumble, the echo, and then a car bombing not far away. And back then, there's no iPhone, there's no Twitter. You don't know what's happening. Uh, I think within hours, I knew it was Samir Asir who was mm -hmm. killed. So I. And the book of Beirut was his? Not his, but oh. it was, in a way, it's, it's the story of the city and then somebody deeply invested in the history of this country yeah. killed down the street. And he has his own book on Beirut, which is... Which became, I think, uh, my manual. Yeah. I still use it whenever I need to cite anything or, or reference something. It's a heavy book. I think it's a kilo in weight. <laughs> yeah. It's over 600 pages long. But it's, it is the best book, I think, on, on the city's history. So these two people kind of, in a way, persuaded me, I think, to, to take more interest. And uh, I stayed. I was supposed to go back to the States in uh, July 2006, but I was here, be Harib Tammuz, and I stayed. I decided not to go back to the States. Ah, you stayed here? Stayed here, and I joined a very e eclectic group of volunteers at Zico House. Yeah, I and remember Zico House. Yeah. You remember Zico? So, I mean... Is it still open now? I have no idea. Uh, me neither. But I joined a group called Samidun, yeah. and I did not know their politics. I didn't know what their backstory was. All I knew was that they were doing volunteer work. I said, that's the kind of crowd I want to be with. So I did some volunteering with them and Oxfam in July yeah. 2006. Just a uh, hygiene kit distribution. And you stayed in Lebanon? I stayed in Beirut. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I stayed in, uh, I mean, I stayed throughout the bombing. Uh, I got, I was actually in Junie, not far from here, when yeah. they hit the, the, um, I don't remember which day it was, but there was one strike in Junie on the, I think it was the ah, army post. during the Harb Tammuz. The Harb Tammuz, yeah. And actually, yeah, I, I remember... Beside the casino, the me, casino. Me, yeah. So that, I mean, I found myself for, in, a, in a strange way always close to conflict. And I didn't choose this. I just yeah. sort of ended up being close to it. But I think those, those experiences made me more and more interested 
and exactly what this country was going through. And this is this is years ago. Yeah. But that's where the seeds are planted. Interesting. Uh, you stayed in Lebanon until your father was assassinated, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, take me through that journey before uh, going back to each sure. uh, like uh, phase, yeah. which this uh, political imagination just is getting built yeah. through and through. And I have to cite here that uh, the late Muhammad Chattah, you know, through my work as a reporter, yes. as a journalist, I uh, had some connections to some politicians. Mm. Uh, um, I was during that phase, I'm talking about the 2012 till 2013. Mm. So when I began working uh, between OTV and then Al Jadid, I was critical of uh, the future movement's economic policies and still am. But uh, back then, uh, you had different kinds of MPs or ministers. Mm. Some would take it personally and some don't. So um, Muhammad Shatah was, um, he was a great guy, he was a great man, because uh, when I needed any information about any stuff, he uh, always answered and always gave some really juicy information, not just any kind of talk, mm -hmm. just to finish. Uh, neglecting any uh, political background or any opinion that I had, And he was a, a very decent minister back then. And uh, I can't say um, we had a close relationship, but it was a recurrent uh, cause back and uh, forth. I'm glad you're sharing this because when I, in my podcast, many, many of the guests, I mean, I've done 257, 58 episodes. So yeah. I've had a lot of sort of intera interaction with many people. I always look for these stories. I like someone else telling me stories of my father on their terms and it's nice just to know these little facts yeah i think it helps me keep him alive too by hearing other people talk about him back then so. my most important thing in politics and it remains till this day my most important thing that i i make any judgment to any person on mm. is uh, how does the uh, political polarization affect your human behavior. Mm, yeah. If you're polarized in a manner that you cannot speak to other people who oppose you in political uh, ideas or whatever, I have a deep problem with that. Mm, yeah. Otherwise, I really invite opposition because uh. Uh, ideas cannot just flourish if we are talking in some echo chamber. So that's what I loved about Muhammad Chata. Thank you for, for saying that. Actually, it means a lot. Um, I don't pretend to even resemble 1% of his stature. You're getting the bad version of him, for better <laughs> or worse. I uh, I think Samir Asir's assassination is what impacted me the most. Um, I think that kind of that kind of figure, who was killed, and learning about him later after, in the aftermath, I think it drew me to the city's history and it drew me to someone like him because he struck me as somebody very decent and, and fairly humble and not looking for glamour or, or fame or, or financial gain for that matter. The kind of politician that I would, and many, I think it's the kind of person I'm drawn to. Yeah. Somebody who's, who's passionate about their craft and able to, in a way, share the story on their terms. So I decided to try doing a history tour in his honor. And I succeeded for for about well for many years. 
I did a walking tour in Beirut. It was called Walk Beirut. Interesting. And I took at times 50, 60 people with me uh, across Beirut. And these were Lebanese and foreigners that were curious about the city's history. And I shared it on my terms. So it was purely storytelling. Uh. It wasn't a boring sort of fact sheet or pointing at things that don't really matter. It wasn't a tourist-friendly tour. Yeah. So it's not Roche or, you know, Al-Mathaf, even though Al-Mathaf is important. It was more getting into the stories of neighborhoods and individuals. And I used to share a 150-year story, starting with a very strange Protestant missionary, Daniel Bliss, and ending it with Samir Asir's assassination in 2005. So the 1860s until 2005. And it would end at Samir Asir in downtown. I thought that was the best way to honor him. And in many ways, uh, sideline my thesis at AUB as long as I could, delay it as many years as I could. <laughs> oh, there we go. No, that's so part of the story. That's, that's fine. <laughs> we can continue with that. It's fine. And that was my way of also trying to offer a form of poetic justice yeah. for somebody I didn't know, somebody I admired. Uh, and it worked. It worked for many years. And I actually kept doing it until my father's assassination. Yeah. So that's when I stopped. And I didn't bring it back to life until I returned to Beirut. And that was four years later. You uh, redid the same tour? I changed it. Yeah. Because... Uh, well, I, there's more history to tell. The, the city doesn't... I mean, the city changes, I think, rapidly for a short period of time. And then it can stay stag stagnant for decades. Yeah. So this was at a time I think there was... It was fairly paralyzed. So the, the history of the city did not change much, but my own sort of story changed. And I, I didn't at first think it was appropriate to talk about my father's assassination on the tour. And then I realized that's just not possible. You have to let it out. Yeah. So I wrote a tribute to my father in Martyrs Square, and I made it part of the tour. And it's one of the episodes on my podcast as well. It's just called El Birish. Yeah. And that was my way of just trying to bring things together. The history of the city and my own personal relationship. I'll be in a very small way. It's just one individual. It's one assassination. There have been many assassinations in this country. And Beirut's history is very, very long. Yeah. But I was trying to at least honor something that mattered to me. Definitely. And I, I found a way to do it. And I actually kept doing it until October 17. Oh, really? Yeah. So now it's... COVID and everything that happened since, it's yeah. just, it's not possible. What did you do as, as work uh, during that era from 2000, let's say, five? Well, I was a graduate assistant at AUB. Uh -huh. I ran the, uh, I managed the Salibi pension. The music mm -hmm. school turned into a pension. Um, I, I wrote occasionally, actually. I have s several pieces that are published. And I did the tour. And... It wasn't really until uh, 2013 that I was forced to maybe take other decisions. Yeah. But it was, a, I, I like to say I'm a slasher. <laughs> so slash, slash, yeah, slash, yeah, yeah. slash, slash, part-time writer, part-time storyteller, part-time graduate <laughs> assistant. And you can make a living that way. Yeah. That's not the best capitalistic mode. Uh, the, the capitalism needs uh, just uh, specialization <laughs> in one yeah. specific matter. Uh, but I think I'm like you in a way because I like I like doing things on my terms as long as it's good. Yeah. And I don't mind the financial drawbacks to that 
as long as it's uh, it's your own. When did you think that let's start a podcast? Let's go this way. I am a big fan of storytellers. Uh, so that it shows. It's, yeah, and I'm you know th- these are the f- I've done a, I've done episodes that are not politics per se or not conversations rather it's just telling a story or if there's input the voices are also telling a story so that's yeah. that's my passion and i thought you can't there's just no way you can limit beirut to a walking tour for four hours i actually tried seven hour walking tour which people were burning their feet were collapsing yeah. <laughs> it just it doesn't work but there was so much i wanted to explore that you can't on a history tour So I decided, why not make this part of the tour? And I reached out to my favorite storyteller, Uziah Dwayri. Yeah. Love him, hate him. Everyone has an opinion about him. <laughs> like I think everything. You, you can, yeah, you can maybe love and hate somebody as well. But I love his storytelling craft and I love his movies. I was a big fan of West Beirut growing up. So you know what? I want to start with him. And I reached out to him. And he was very generous. He said, I'm, I'm welcome to talk. I actually went to Paris to, to speak with him. Yeah. He invited me into his editing studio. And we had a very, very, very rewarding two-hour conversation about... It was recorded? Recorded. It's ah, the first episode. It's the, the first part. episode. Yeah. Interesting. And it's really about him. It's, it's, how he, it's how he became who he is and his childhood, his adolescence, his love for filmmaking... And that's infectious. I, mm. I love that. So I decided there's something here. I stayed longer than I should have in Paris. And I met Ziad Mejit. Yeah. So I wanted to hear Samir Asir's story through his dear comrade. Uh, I met Nadim Houdi, who was at Arab Reform Initiative, but was Human Rights Watch yeah. in Paris. I took a train ride to Geneva, and I met Yasma Flehan, Basil's, yeah. Basil Flehan's wife. Yeah to hear her stories about Ras Beirut growing up with Basel. And I said, this is the way to do it. I said, I just don't have money to stay in Paris for weeks on end. <laughs> so I decided, okay, I can do this maybe on the side. And it started that way. But it wasn't really, it wasn't until October 17, I think, mm. that it took off. Because I was, I was doing episodes about storytellers and stories And then suddenly I was in Beirut. It was in Martyrs Square. And the city was alive. Yeah. And, and I mean, we witnessed this. We know what it was like. I felt almost stupid to stick to that formula. It just didn't make sense to me. So I had my microphone. Um, I sat in Martyrs Square. And I just started recording yeah. on the streets. I had a co-host who more or less lived in Martyrs Square for a month. She was moving from tent to tent, just doing interviews. Some of these people are now well-known, but mm. back then they were just protesters on the street. I was doing long-form conversations every single day, and I worked my butt off. And I ended up with a very big audience through audio. Yeah. There was no video component. It was really just audio narration. On which platforms uh, oh, people can find it? SoundCloud, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. Okay. I, I, and Rami as well. Yeah. I, 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 I tried to diversify as much as possible. Stitcher as well, but I had no video. I didn't really believe in the video format until COVID. <laughs> and the reason I say this is I think commuters love audio. Yeah. 
And I saw the numbers increasing dramatically because I think people like to listen to podcasts when they're driving. Definitely when, when walking, they're walking. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe in the States, if they're on the metro, subway, or in Europe, we don't have that. But, yeah. <laughs> maybe you listen yeah, to a yeah. podcast. And then I saw the numbers kind of going down as COVID took off. So, oh, I think it's because people are at home. Yeah. Because the content wasn't changing, yeah. but it was the, I think, attention of the audience. So I, I added a YouTube channel when COVID started. Yeah. Uh, the frustration is that uh, I follow your, your interviews. Uh, we should leave it there. <laughs> the frustration is I follow your interviews, <laughs> and that's the takeaway. <laughs> no, that's not the frustration. The frustration is that uh, I don't think that it's getting the attention that it deserves. Mm. Because we, you have interviews with many interesting people. I saw the one with Amr Psalt. It was yes. interesting. Yeah. I saw the one with Hoff, you know, the Hoff line. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that was a ver- yeah, very yeah. interesting uh, interview with someone who's very relevant to our daily news now right. without knowing why. Yeah. So uh, these kind of interviews are quite interesting uh, among many others. But I believe the English language is the barrier for, for not just having the audience that deserves. I agree. I agree. That's the one drawback. Um, But I will say... Which is weird, you know, because in Lebanon, and I I, I used to remember when I was at AUB or even at NDU, I know many people listen to podcasts. Mm. So maybe it takes some time for them to be redirected to some Lebanese uh, podcast in English. Right. I think, but also that the audience is diverse because I think a lot of the diaspora tunes in. Yeah. I, I see the numbers in the States or even in, in Australia or sometimes in Germany that they're in the thousands. So I assume these are just Lebanese abroad yeah, that are clicking, looking for information. But I agree. Yeah. I think that is the one drawback. It's language. Yeah. But I try my best in English. And that's. Uh, but at the same time, English has its own audience. Hey. There are many people who tell me to subtitle my videos because they don't really understand the technical words, especially mm. those who live abroad. Yes. Yeah, so it definitely has its own. That's the drawback of being independent, is yeah. that you have to self-fund a translator. If it's the, not that easy, you know. No, no, it's not. And you want somebody who can do it quickly. Yeah. So I have a translator for certain episodes that yeah. you can click and the Arabic subtitles appear. But it's that's the drawback. Yeah, how much time does it take him to... Uh, I mean, now, if I'm lucky, three business days, uh, I get that. the translation so, back. Uh, yeah. So now we're shooting this, I have to upload it tomorrow, so uh, you cannot do yeah. it easily. And I'm at luck. Sometimes it, they come later. Yeah. I did one 90-minute episode. I th- it took a month to get yeah. the subtitles. Hopefully. These are the frustrations of a podcast. Nobody, I think, really would. Unless you're, <laughs> no one cares. Yeah, they're like, yeah. what is this? <laughs> <laughs> These are what podcasters have to deal with. Yeah. <laughs>